This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Wayne. We're going to talk about In the Mountains of Madness, not At the Mountains of Madness, a biography of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, not the novel by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, this is a, a book... Who would make that mistake? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no one here, of course. Um, right. <laughs> it's a two, 2016 biography by uh, a professor named W. Scott Poole. Um, it's subtitled The Extraordinary Afterlife of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I've actually read it uh, about two and a half times, um, and I was really impressed with a lot of the stuff in it in the first time, and then um, I started anno- uh, being annoyed by some of the writing style later on. But, ah, interesting. <laughs> but um, what uh, you guys presumably didn't read it <laughs> one or two times or zero times um, before me, what did the two who had read it uh, prior uh, think? Mr. Jim Moon? Um, I liked it a lot, um, but I did have some reservations about it. Um, I mean, I think it was, it's a very interesting book. So I've read quite a few Lovecraft biographies. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I got a copy of the uh, DeCamp hardback that turned up in a second-hand bookshop out the blue years ago was my, the first one I read. Then I've read like Joshi's and the Hulbeck and a few others. Mm. And they all very much, you know, they cleave pretty much to the same kind of view of Lovecraft. And uh, what I liked about this one, it, it, he was very much chiming with my, my own current thoughts about Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And that is, have we all fallen into the trap of getting sucked into the idea that he was this weird recluse who lived in an attic and wrote about monsters, and he did it because he was crazy. <laughs> his big lantern jaw, and he had no friends, and he had really, really, really horrible, horrible politics, and he was a madman, and he only went out after dark, and he was a monster. And basically, you know, the whole line of him, he's a horror writer. He's a visionary horror writer. There must be something wrong with him. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Marissa, what did you what did you take away from this? Is this your first biography or thing like a biography? Yeah, it was my first biography, so I was coming at it completely. Yeah, the first time I've like heard his whole story like in one sort of piece. You know, I've mm. like absorbed bits and pieces from around. Right. Um. So yeah, I was actually really curious what those of you who have read other biographies would think because um, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I went online and started reading the reviews and the <laughs> and all the um, sort of hearing about the other biographies. And he kind of talks about it a little mm-hmm. bit in his book as well. He deals with some of the conflicts between his version and other versions. And I was like, oh, there's a big kind of mess to wade into here. But, yeah, I enjoyed it as just coming at it fresh. Wayne, uh, have you read any biographies other than uh, the one we didn't get get you? In the, the one I just was supposed to read for today. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've read I've read uh, uh, some of Joshi's stuff, and I I, I think the I've I am I, Providence uh, books. Yeah, I've 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 had the impression, uh, you know, that Jim characterized him as uh, that's what uh, that's what everybody says. Right. Um, uh, how did this uh, this fellow uh, 
I take it he didn't fall in with that uh, with that characterization. How did uh, what was his take on H.P. Lovecraft? Well, there's two two big takeaways for me. I I have to admit I have not read any other biography, so I know I've read a ton of primary material, you know, like uh, letters and uh, uh, you know, especially a lot of letters to the editor of weird tales I, I go through weird tales a lot so i can't i can't speak to any other biography i did read the hulebeck but that's i think he points out in here somewhere that hulebeck is not really doing biography either he's more like he is lovecraft's vision man mm, <laughs> that's my version of a french so, accent yeah. by the way um, <laughs> that's great uh, <laughs> Um, but one of the things that, you know, I, I have heard most of the stories and have read lots of reviews of the other biographies and you sort of absorb it, uh, in the periphery. But, uh, the two things that were the big takeaway for me was we get a lot of Lovecraft's childhood, which you wouldn't think is that interesting. Um, I like thinking about it the third time through the first few chapters and I'm wondering, like... Why, why do we care so much about what some kid in the early 20th century was doing? But he makes a pretty compelling case for um, him being uh, a forerunner of a lot of the things. And I've, I've paralleled a lot of things to my own life. But the other thing that is really different about this book, I would say, not that I've read all the other biographies, but he does talk about the other biographies in here, um, is about his mom and his wife. And mm. turning the mom into a human being, uh, other than a character caricature, one of the lines that's never addressed um, in this book, I, I'm pretty sure it's never addressed, is the one that everybody probably hears about Lovecraft's mom, that apparently he described her child as a hideous-looking kid, which <laughs> if... if, if um, Thanks, my mom, mom described me at an early age as a hideous-looking kid. That might traumatize me, or it might not. <laughs> uh, but he never addresses it in here. I, did did uh, am I wrong about that? Uh, no, no. You find that in the Decamp uh, biography, and the, like that. I mean, that's the mother of all biographies, and it's, it's a line that I've seen repeated many times. And kind of, this is why Lovecraft uh, adopted a nocturnal right lifestyle because he was very insecure about his looks and he was a strange man who ventured out after dark with his ugly lantern jaw and kind of this kind of this kind of, sort of armchair psychology which um stephen hick king once said he, he said i regard that kind of analysis a little better than not the hip astrology yeah i mean <laughs> you'd think it would have been addressed uh, even if it's to dispel it but um i, I kept waiting for that to turn up and you know, be a whole chapter or something, because it is such a, pr- a prominent feature. He, he Poole makes a pretty good case for um, his mom not being a nut, his mom being uh, actually kind of progressive, uh, pretty yeah, interesting. That, that was really interesting. Like to, I guess I just like never really thought critically about it before. Like you just hear all these kind of stories about her and him being oppressed by this woman and. I just fell into that trap of not really ever thinking about it. But, you know, this woman who's described as a hysteric and depressive and then, but yeah. And and then, like he says, she was probably just a bit of a freak, like a bit of an independent, crazy, kooky, you know, quite open-minded woman who Mm -hmm. was out of place in that time. Wayne, what, what do you, what did you hear about Lovecraft's mom? 
Uh, well, you know, it's uh, he, that uh, she was uh, problematic. She locked him in the attic, and that's where he got his <laughs> uh, his ideas from having the thing in the attic and 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 all that. And that uh, uh, particularly that uh, she had influenced his politics in that uh, you know his uh, his whole reputation as uh, these days as a um, as a racist and. Uh, how did that guy, uh, how did Poole address uh, uh, Lovecraft's politics, or did he? Um, hmm. Uh, well, he, I don't, I'm not sure we get a super clear picture of his politics. Mr. Jim Moon, what do you think? Uh, he addresses it, but um, I mean, this is one of the things I, I sort of take issue with, um, cautiously take issue with, because he's a sensitive subject, and... I've seen this discussed before. Generally, no one ends up happy at the right. end of it. But right. <laughs> on the subject of Lovecraft racism, I mean, I see a lot online these days of where I've almost parroted the party line is, oh, he was super racist. He was. You can't say he was a, a man of his time because he was even more racist than than people of the age. And I'm sorry, I, I've studied history. I've studied American history. Uh, and that's a that's a crock of bull, <laughs> you right. know, kind of um, Lovecraft races. I mean, Poole does address it to an extent. He, he dismisses the man of his time argument, which I, I'm not sure you can use it as a defense, but he was a man of his time and uh, his politics and the racial aspect was very rooted in his first love science at the time. And science, unfortunately, at the, in the 20s and 30s was full of eugenics and racial theory and sure. phrenology was still doing the rounds for, for pity's sake and you know sort of physical profiling people by their looks and that didn't really get blown out of the water till after we'd learned the lesson of the second world war and so i kind of th I, I think he tries to make a balanced case but he's still sort of condemns the man maybe overly harshly i think he was a product of his times and you know yeah, that, we that's how i go, that's that's kind of the, the, the take uh, that's my personal take on it uh um and and to me it's not as if uh, i try and divorce the work from from the the uh, creator of it anyway because mm. you know uh, i don't have to enjoy his politics to uh, to enjoy his creativity, uh, and I can even celebrate his creativity uh, without celebrating his politics. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, it's it's not as if uh, his work is is, uh, is proselytizing. It, it's not as if you know, r read this and you'll become convinced that that's the way to be. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it it really isn't. Uh, it, to me, it's two different subjects. You know, I mean, you know, what if Rembrandt was a wife beater? Would you never <laughs> go to the museum again? You know, it's it, it's that kind of uh, that kind of. Uh, when you said politics, I didn't I didn't think it was going to go in that direction. I was like, well, he's kind of conservative because he calls himself <laughs> conservative, right? Yeah. The conservative man of uh, of Providence or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of trying to back into the racism issue. <laughs> ah, okay, gotcha. Um, and so That's his really, mother is usually blamed for that, or uh, I haven't heard that before. I think she or, just broke him psychologically. Is the is the idea mm -hmm. turned yeah. him into the monster Allegedly, that yeah. he? Is, is his grandfather's <laughs> normally gets the blame for the racism, you know, yeah. passing oh, on the passing on the politics. And to be honest, though, I think kind of when we take a writer like Lovecraft or any creator 
we're kind of putting them on a pedestal and we're trying to see what makes them special and we forget mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. actually take them off the pedestal and, you know, stand them next to each other. I think we all get our politics from our, you know, our parents and our family first and foremost. We might grow up and go in a different direction, but our first political opinions are very much the ones we learn from the people closest to us. And that yeah. isn't yeah. unusual. Yeah. And I think the point kind of um, pool does make not strongly enough is the fact that we see Lovecraft very much, or a lot of people see Lovecraft now as being unusual and extreme in his Mm. politics and his views. And the fact is, and it's maybe not a happy fact, but they weren't unusual or fringe views. They were commonplace ones at the time. I mean, this is the age where birth of a nation a story that, you know, rhapsodizes the KKK was a box office smash. I mean, you know, he wasn't from a weird family who had these views. They, they were just the general views that, you know, people in America at that time, a lot of people had. They were mainstream, for, you know, for better or worse. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that's a defense of his views. I'm not saying that's condoning his views. Or It's just the historical fact. That's how it was. <laughs> Right. You know, of, uh, uh, and I mean, I think kind of there's a lot of things kind of pool touches on where he kind of I think he does sort of bring Lovecraft away from that kind of, oh, he was a strange creative writer and therefore he must have been strange and creative. And he just sort of humanize him and humanizes so his family of that, you know, he realized kind of, yes, he had a very close relationship with his mother and his aunts mm. and they they weren't terrible mad women they were strong independent women women of means educated women who very much encouraged his learning Mm. yeah and quite playful too by the sounds of it i love those images of them you know him and his mother uh reading shakespeare and screaming and trying to like upset the neighbors and you know that that might have all been where some of the stories come from about his abusive mother could just be her playing with her kid and not caring what the neighbors think Well, maybe do it to annoy the neighbours. As cool. Yeah. I thought that was very. Uh, that, that seems to fit because I mean, you know, I mean, uh, the thing is with with horror writers in particular, we tend to sort of uh, psychoanalyze them. You know, we're looking for they write horror. What's wrong with them? Mm-hmm. And it's a curious kind of thing we have with the way you know, no one approaches crime writers going. They write about horror crimes. They must be psychopaths. <laughs> we go, oh, what clever devils! They made interesting characters and plots. <laughs> you know, we don't apply the same rules. And with Lovecraft, I mean, I know there's a story kind of, um, he apparently did uh, buy uh, a wax cylinder recorder and recorded some of his singing for his mother. Oh, um, oh wow. <laughs> which doesn't survive because Lovecraft said in a letter, he said, the recording so reminded me of uh, Fox Terrier being strangled. I uh, <laughs> I made sure I accidentally dropped them. <laughs> oh, God. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of side of, you know, you know, people forget Lovecraft had a sense of humour. He loved cats and ice cream. He wasn't a mad recluse. And mm-hmm. from the sound of it, you know, he kind of he had a very strong relationship with his mother. Her death, you know, affected him greatly. And and that's probably a more important um, impact his mother had on him than he so kind of supposed this kind of mad woman stereotype, which I think Poole really successfully demolishes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with good evidence, too, I thought. Yeah, I, she seems to be uh, like an, a very admirable person. Given, you know, she's she's the only parent. She's providing mm-hmm. uh, every kind of toy that 
you would want a kid to have. I mean, I would want my kids to have chemistry sets if they want them. I would want to get subscriptions to all the magazines they want to read. There, There isn't... And, you know, pulling them out of school also, like, Jesus, school was torture and punishment for me. Mm. I would have, I would, yeah. I would have pulled myself out of school if if my mom wasn't a teacher. <laughs> yeah, rather than sounding like a hysterical woman, and in this story, she, I, I was like thinking like, oh, I would want to be this woman's friend. Like she yeah. sounds awesome. She doesn't yeah. give a fuck. She's just like, oh yeah, they're gonna teach you like all this crazy religion stuff. Like come home and read all these other mythologies instead, and do what you want and expand your mind in different ways than just sitting in school. We're feel. Uh, I feel like the second time through, or maybe the third time through, the first few chapters, or whatever the the sections, I guess. Um, I I felt like he's filling in gaps uh, with a lot of speculation, but the mm-hmm. evidence that he brings to light that I'd never heard of before um, seems really interesting, and mm-hmm. and it makes me think um, that you know a lot of the support for why he is such an interesting figure can be attributed to uh, his really non-standard childhood behavior, if not uh, interests. You know, like, starting a... you get this, Wayne June. Starting a detective agency after you finish playing uh, war games, uh, like Dungeons & Dragons-style war games, with your (laughs) minifigs that you're, you're customizing with your mom's help, um, you, that's too too old fashioned for you. So between the ages what fourteen and and seventeen or eleven and seventeen, something like that, he he starts a detective agency with the local boys and carries his twenty two caliber pistol around with him. Um, <laughs> wow! Tailing tailing uh, suspicious looking characters all over Providence, <laughs> hanging out in the in the clubhouse with which has some sort of garden and and a fortress, and <laughs> it's like wow, that is. That is uh, like my childhood, which was very strange as well, but not as, um, you know, I didn't carry an actual pistol. I was more a crossbow. Pistols are hard to get up here, I guess. <laughs> but, man, I couldn't believe that. He, 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 well, here's how it says. He had other methods available to him. We know, for example, that his family allowed him to play with the twenty two pistol at an absurdly early age. Another aspect of his boyhood argues that against the idea that Susan, Sarah Susan, that's his mom's name, as the overbearing mother. So, yeah, um, maybe his mom didn't allow him to play with it, but he still <laughs> played with it anyways. So I, 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 I'm not sure that all of the um, conclusions that we get out of here are 100%. I, I kept thinking of how this book is not going to age very well. It's going to be so... N- 2016-2017 with the the suppositions but the facts that are uncovered are incredibly um, interesting and and hard to argue with Yeah, I'd never never heard about the detective agency neither had I that's a little little beyond precocious I think at (laughs) at 14 (laughs) Well, I, I formed a, a rubbish detective agency when I was 10. So, and did you carry oh, well. a pistol? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, when we didn't have a pistol. But, I mean, it's one of those things I think kind of – he does a great job, but he doesn't quite go far enough with it because I think kind of – say about him having a pistol. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go online and look up a gun show that happened this weekend mm. and you will see toddlers with automatic <laughs> weapons. 
is Lovecraft having a pistol that unusual? I yeah. don't think it is, no. you know? Yeah. Also, um, probably, I mean, that, that wasn't even an issue at that time. It wasn't like, you know, gun control was a, was a big hot-button issue in the, in the 20s and 30s. Well, no, no, but, no, yeah, but so carrying it around as a detective are... is pretty. Uh, I mean, it, w- one of the one of the things that is r- really well made, and whenever I look at old stuff with the period like this, like the fact that football is becoming a really big deal, and one of the striking lines in here is about how, um, in one of the years he was in high school, every every kid was, uh, every male was given a badge that ranked them between one and three. Uh, as to the level of, you know, masculine physique, like you have to walk around with this, this badge that says, you know, you're a you're a beta or you're a delta. <laughs> um, fuck you, society. <laughs> fuck you so hard because, yeah, I mean, looking at Lovecraft's photos, you think, oh, I can see why his mom might have freaked out about his looks, but he's not ugly. He's just striking, is what I would say. Mm. And mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you know he isn't. A bodybuilder, uh, like you know, a lot of people at the time were like uh, William Hope Hodgson, right? Fucking <laughs> ma- man's man goes and gets himself shot during the war, blown up in an artillery shell. Lovecraft can't get in the army uh, to go. F- that's a good thing. I'm glad. Yeah. Um, so, just seeing from the like, what's wrong with the society at the time? Really, you're you're either going with it in some respects, and he was, or you're going against it. And when he embraces the things that he embraces, like uh, amateur journalism, and um, just ravenously reading all the pulp magazines, um, I, I'm like saying, oh yeah, this is this is explaining so much about why my sympathy resonates with Lovecraft in in his stories right is because he's interested in really interesting things and not you know getting that badge that makes him uh one of the cool kids at school the the yeah the, the, yeah. yeah i mean to me uh teddy roosevelt was uh kind of horrible he, i mean he's 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 fascinating but he's also kind of horrible because he encouraged the things that would go get his own kids killed right you know the the war um, thing where you know he he's he becomes devastated at the death of his son Kermit, um, and why why did his son die? Because he encouraged him sort of to unconsciously think uh, that war was a masculine thing to do. And Lovecraft could have gone that direction, you know, if his mom hadn't said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, here, Sonny Jim, you're not going anywhere." Yeah. Which. You know, normally, uh, you know, he thinks of as a bad thing, but um, that, uh, World War One was a mistake, right? Mm. He sh- it, it's lucky he didn't have to go. I find it interesting, Pool, you know, has the suggestion that possibly the family pulled some strings mm-hmm. to, to get him turned down. And, I mean, that's the other, th- the great Lovecraft myth that he was this strange, sickly, twilight individual. And actually... You know, reading this account, you find well, actually, he wasn't a strange, sickly child. He had friends. He he did go out. He was a you know a huge, uh, you know, walker uh, and a rambler and visited places and had friends. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's kind of this kind of idea of the mad recluse. I think is actually this advice. I don't think Poole takes it far enough because, to be honest, 
I can, you know, there's probably an awful lot of people who are close to their family, who only have a couple of close, close friends, particularly pre-internet days, mm. and like to go for a walk and read books and maybe suffer from some social anxiety and, you know, mm. may, mild depression. It's kind of, this isn't a crazy person. This is most of the people I know. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I should uh, I should point out that one of the this is a kind of a it's not really even a biography because it it it's it's very much a so the subtitle the life and extraordinary afterlife so the the stuff about the, the there's three sections not part one the night gaunts which is about his childhood basically and him becoming H.P. Lovecraft uh, forbidden books I guess is his influences and and the stories themselves. And then uh, Cthulhu Rises is about his, you know, August Derleth and and Cthulhu plushies and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm not sure that the Cthulhu plushie section is as powerful as the first section um, for scholarship. However, um, in Forbidden Books section, I was pleased to see, you know, uh, I, I, I really like the more obscure Lovecraft stories like Hypnos, Mr. Jim Moon, you and I did a show mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. I love that story. Um, and I, I, I also fear that as Poole does in this book, um, that people might get Hypnos tattoos instead of Cthulhu <laughs> and start ruining the story. Uh, because I really enjoyed that stuff. He, he was very funny. Like, a. I liked his um his sort of sarcastic take on the pop culture and yeah yeah and the, yeah the hipsters and it's kind of funny he wasn't mean about it he was just sort of good humored there is a, a there is an un, inordinate amount of it and um, mm-hmm. just trying to I mean that's what this book is really trying to do I think in the, in that section is trying to figure out where the hell it comes from and what I don't think he comes away with the the answer but he's certainly um making the case for it i i think he states it pretty near the beginning as well that you know he's the sort of the secret history of why society is the way it is today um at least in some respects um you know that why there are cthulhu for president bumper stickers uh is it's it's like he was forward thinking the comparisons between um lovecraft and gygax um, I just read the comic book biography of Gygax that came out recently. Um, Gary Gygax, creator of Dungeons and Dragons, and um, uh, there were some eerie parallels between the two guys. Both of them were really into that game um, that H.G. Wells invented, uh, floor games, I think Little, it was called. Uh, Little Wars. Little Wars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, it's basically. Uh, War Warhammer, basically, right? I've never played Warhammer. Well, it's pretty much the Little Wars is the I think it's the, the one of the very first proper attempts to write a, a set of wargaming rules, and that that's where the entire wargaming hobby kind of starts. Right. I mean, H.G. Wells is the grand great grandfather of of modern gaming. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> it is, and it, it, you see, like these are two dudes. I mean, it's you, you could put it like Lovecraft's the fantasy element of the 20th and 21st century, and uh, you know the 
ancestor for it, but I, I think that that's not exactly because he, he's not really a fantasist in most cases, I don't think. But H.G. Uh, Wells certainly almost every kind of genre of science fiction he he sort of did something in, and even fantasy he did something in put his hand on or his stamp on it and then everything's sort of a reaction to him doctor who could not exist without the the time machine right it's it is the time machine in mm-hmm. in a it just with personality right with a with a a doctor who is uh has a personality and companions who can make it more more accessible to younger kids somehow Did Poole address uh, anything about uh, um, Lovecraft's marriage to Sonia Green? Mm-hmm. As she was, um, if I remember correctly, I think she was she was kind of like, um, she used to bankroll like uh, Pulp Fiction uh, yeah. writers, didn't she? When yeah. She was a, a publisher of some sort. Yeah, she was, uh, she found him or he found her through amateur journalism, right, which is... Uh, Poole correctly points to as sort of like their version of blogging, right, um, or podcasting maybe, uh, mm-hmm. where you've got all these people in all these cities who are writers who have stuff to write and want to share it and have people see it. And um, she was, yeah, she made a donation to one of the magazines, United Amateur, I think it was, um, and uh, wrote, you know, the the letters to the editor um and such she comes off pretty well i think Uh, lovecraft comes off pretty badly i think as a husband (laughs) in this um she uh, it it isn't i think as pushed in this book as in other places i've seen but uh she pursued him and he he was in the right mood for uh getting married i guess um she convinced him and then when uh, they moved to New York for her work. Um, he sort of, I would say, at the beginning comes into his own as a, um, a raconteur, um, but a complete complete failure when it comes to you know getting a job and s- <laughs> making a home and <laughs> staying Having out all night dinner carousing. Parties. Yeah, car- carousing <laughs> all night, not drinking alcohol, but you know wandering the town looking at looking at uh, architecture and probably commenting on the on the blacks or whatever. Um, And packing his his 22. uh, Well, that's a little later, but yeah, you could, you could certainly imagine that, but um, she, she comes off as um, a pretty dynamic person in that she's always making the money. She's always making stuff. One of the things I was, I was shocked to see missing is the daughter. And I guess it's just, we don't have data on her, but Sonia Green had a, a teenage daughter, hmm. right? Am I wrong about this? <sighs> no, she did. I mean, this was news to me because I'd never really, I think I'd heard mentioned that mentioned here. before. <laughs> so they're living together, right? Mm. So it's Lovecraft has a, a stepdaughter um, who, and apparently there was some kerfuffle between the mom and the daughter at some point, uh, and they weren't speaking to each other. Uh, but that I think that's later on after you know after the separation or whatever. But it seems to me she's she's um, she's just a strong 
woman who, you know, she's actually living her life, making money, making a good wage, um, interested in the things she's interested, finds this guy who can write some beautiful poetry, <laughs> says, I'm after him, goes after him, gets him, um, and then realizes, oh, shit, <laughs> this guy cannot, he's completely unemployable. And part of the story <laughs> about, I, I think, in I, I don't think Poole states it, but I think he makes the case for it very well, is that he's a rich man who's come down in the world because of sort of the fact that that's what happens, right? If you don't, if you don't um, actively keep your money up, if your father, or sorry, grandfather in this case, makes a poor investment with all your cash, um, you're not equipped to deal with, uh, you know... It, it, what Lovecraft's main attempt to earn money in his in his whole life was to revise other people's writing. And that is, you know, it's hard enough to get people. Well, maybe Marissa, you can speak to this. It's hard enough to get people to uh, to pay for or pay writers, but to get uh, to rewrite someone else's stuff and get have them sell it, and you get only a little. Tor- that's not enough. You can't make a living yep. like that, could you? I don't know about back then. Well, how about now? Yeah. Can you make a living? Yeah, I mean that is my living. I've mm. been doing that for like ten years, so okay. <laughs> I can definitely make a living. Well, he couldn't. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I think it's because Will you stop picking on me and Howard just because we can't <laughs> goddamn job. <laughs> Wayne, I think you down. can make a living now. I yeah. think. But was um, he? Um, was he rewriting? Like, was he kind of like ghostwriting and rewriting and stuff? Like, yeah. is it kind of a bit different to what an editor does nowadays, sort of thing? Yeah, he was. He was doing uh, that. There's, there's one ad in Weird Tales, a very tiny one. Um, you know, I think it was with another author. It was with another author. Um, you know, saying poetry and uh, fiction revised. And then a lot of the stuff that's in Weird Tales, you know, the Zelia Bishop. Um, Curse of Yig and stuff like that is him just rewriting somebody's work completely. Yeah, do you know he he probably could have made a living on that if he wasn't writing one hundred thousand letters or whatever he wrote. Like <laughs> if you're edit, if you're editing yeah. text, you can't be writing that much. Like, <laughs> but he also like he has no you know we did did a show on Ted Chiang recently uh, his his stuff. I mean, he can't make a living. Uh, I mean, maybe he can now, but you can't make a living writing short stories, which is what Lovecraft was doing, right? right and yeah. and he was not willing to compromise, which is why I love his stuff so much, right? Either when he's even in his stuff that doesn't work that great for me, he is not compromising it to serve the market, and his because he comes from this upper class, and it's it's well documented in this book, I think. He can't. He can't lower himself to do you know manual labor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, There's that. Um, I loved his uh, his job seeking letter that he wrote to some company. Right. That Paul <laughs> <laughs> A completely <laughs> unemployable. Not right? want the job. <laughs> right. What did he say? Maybe I could pick up a few tips on that. <laughs> like 17th century <laughs> furniture was the apotheosis of, or the the peak of of uh furniture design and uh it's a giant massive essay about how to sell furniture for <laughs> copywriting and of course no customer would ever want to 
buy anything that i mean no normal <laughs> customer would ever say oh yeah that's what you know it should be mattresses 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 sale sale <laughs> sale shop now free free pillow with every purchase <laughs> that's what copy editors needed i mean it is it is extraordinarily striking that a man can't get a job a man who's so talented at writing can't get a job in new york right at the mm-hmm. time when so many people were reading there was no there was almost no uh, radio action there was just movies right there's no tv everybody's reading all the time and he can't get a job i don't think he mm-hmm. wanted a job right his carousing and yeah. stuff mm-hmm. uh, and and he's you know he can't grant his wife a divorce either because it's you know gentlemen don't do stuff like that he's <laughs> he he was his own worst enemy when it came to that but that's also what makes him so so powerful i think as a yeah a force. And maybe not even his own worst enemy because i think it's like you say i think he really didn't want a job like he no, was, he didn't yeah it's like for everyone else that was very frustrating but i think he was probably pretty happy just to keep <laughs> doing what he was doing i see so much of myself in in him when when like i there's so many things i'm i'm not willing to do right i mm-hmm. I'll, I'll i'll work I, I when i had a my own business I'll work, you know, 14, 18 hours a day for way lower than good wages because I like being my own boss and not doing stupid stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also have to live in the real world um, because I don't have a wife taking care of me, right? Um, And I, you know... You gotta get yourself a Sonya, man. Jeez, I... I... I think there's probably, you know, she would probably have been really frustrated with him because she is working really hard. She does support him, and he's off spending time with his buddies, maybe even making fun of her. Yeah, um, it sounds like it. I, At least they are, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is like I was thinking, uh, Marissa. We do a lot of PKD stories. Um, I'd much rather spend time with Lovecraft because uh, he's not dangerous. Um, despite his racism and his hate and his, you know, he, he might be a little, um, he's odd, you know, he doesn't, he's ne- one of the things, Dwayne, in here that's hilarious, um, he may have never had a meal outside of his home until, uh, he went to New York. Wow. Never ate in a restaurant, right? Weird, weird, weird. But, but that's a thing. Like, some people just I hate know, eating in apparently. public. Like, still, like, you know, it's like, <laughs> some people just like to be, like, alone in their cave when they eat. <laughs> well, or, you know, with the family at the formal table. Yeah. Uh, yeah. However it works, um, that is not not the normal thing. Uh, mm-hmm. for, he is so out of the ordinary. Um, now, here's a question for Wayne, and then I want to get marissa and uh jim to answer it okay uh wayne was peak uh not pkd was wayne <laughs> not was wayne was lovecraft a gay man oh uh, uh that's an interesting question i wonder um uh it is uh, uh conventional information and you know that uh, uh he apparently admitted that uh Speaking of his wife, Sonia, uh, she was the only woman who had ever kissed him as, right. uh, as, a, in, as an adult. <laughs> uh, so that, that doesn't say that there were or weren't uh, 
other genders kissing him we don't know uh, it was there, <laughs> were there was there was there anything in in pool's book that that addressed that well I, I it's interesting how much time is spent on it um and i think that that's i mean if you're doing a biography i guess you have to but what mr jim moon what's your takeaway was was P, uh, pkd was lovecraft <laughs> a gay man um i don't know i mean i think he certainly had some gay friends, mm-hmm. and I think he was a smart enough guy to not to know what was going on. <laughs> um, whether he was inclined that way, I don't know. My, my gut feeling, though, is I think he, his first love was books and writing. And I think you get this a lot with uh, you get it with M.R. James as well, and also right. you get it with a lot of writers and. I think generally in society, if a man is unmarried and isn't having a string of uh, carousing, womanizing conquests on his, you know, notches on his bedpost to flaunt, people go, he must be gay, <laughs> which I think is something of a, a retrogressive bully attitude. Yep. Because, you know, yeah. there's a lot of people kind of, well, you know, that's all very well, but, you know, I, I do have my, I, there are other things in life and I'm more interested in this. And, um, my impression yeah. is, I mean, I didn't realize that, you know, Sonia, even after they separated, he was writing to her every day. He had wow. a very strong relationship with that lady. Mm-hmm. And sadly, the correspondence is gone. <laughs> and I think, you know, if we had those letters, I think we all might have a bit of a shock. Um, Lovecraft's often portrayed as being asexual, but my take on it, much like M.R. James, they were born to be and raised to be gentlemen and gentlemen didn't discuss that kind of thing mm-hmm. and it's that kind of and Lovecraft being a big anglophile I'm sure he picked up the English reserve <laughs> and you know it's just kind of there might be some very racy letters that we'll never see you don't know um, so I mean there's the story Paul mentions that um, after they separated he did meet Sonia again they um they had, they had a rendezvous a at a hotel, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, she she tried to kiss him, and he sort of said, oh, no, I, "I don't think we should." And that's kind of held up, and I've heard that story held up before as kind of well, he, he was very repressed, or he was a latent homosexual, <laughs> or you know, he was an asexual, whatever. But rather than just not really wanting to kiss your ex that much, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I've been in those sort of situations. I'm sure we all have. Mm. You have an old flame; something could happen, and one of you said, "No, we shouldn't go there." Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have thought really sort of in Poole's book and, you know, giving the, this extra background to his marriage that I hadn't had before. I really actually saw more saw Lovecraft as well. No, he, he's not a weird, repressed guy. He's just like most people who kind of don't have strings of partners. Relationships are difficult. And, you know, he had one. It didn't work out. And there was a chance to be rekindled. And he thought no we can't do it and probably because i don't think he wanted to break sonia's heart right marissa that that was my takeaway from it what's what was your takeaway um i'm completely open-minded on it like i think if if there was some evidence or like jim says like some letter came up or something that he was in a a relationship with some man um i wouldn't be like shocked or surprised like he had I guess the case is there that he had the opportunity to have those kind of relationships. Right, with Barlow especially, right? Yeah, that you could see that that could be going on. But having said that, I didn't see or feel anything to make me think that was actually happening. Like, it just seemed like a dude who's busy with a lot of other things and really close male relationships and isn't really that interested in 
um, his woman friend, but doesn't necessarily mean he was gay either. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. It, it seems to me like um, the the spending a lot of time worrying about whether somebody's a repressed homosexual is kind of a really boring thing. <laughs> <laughs> and the book does dwell on it a lot. And I think the reason it does is because a lot of people do. And it is a question yeah. that people have. Um, I, I think it's fascinating that Barlow uh, was basically in love with Lovecraft, as I think everybody who really gets into Lovecraft is, because he's just a brilliant mind at work. And it's great to spend time with a brilliant mind, right? It, it, it's like... So when he shows up in Florida and, you know, his meets his fan who's, what, 14 years old or something, and they spend the summer together uh, walking around and, and writing poetry, and it's like, oh, that doesn't seem very good for Luet. You know what? Um, it didn't bother me. <laughs> it didn't bother me. It, it was more like, wow, that's a really unusual thing, right, That uh, mm-hmm. that a young person could be... Uh, spending time with an older person, but I, I also do this all the time. I have a whole bunch of students between the ages of eleven and you know eighteen, who I teach, and uh, the relationship I have with them is is most interesting when we're talking about interesting ideas, and it becomes really yeah. uninteresting mm. when we're talking about clothes or any of the normal uh, everyday things. And you know, it, yeah, I think when you put something like when you're talking about art and probably sports as well, although I wouldn't know, <laughs> but I feel like it, I think you do have that kind of like those older, the mentor kind of people and teenagers who will just totally love to spend a lot of time together. Yep. Like that, that seems really normal. Like that's not a sexual thing. That's just, um, people who are super into either an art or some kind of thing that they want to learn and they have their heroes and the heroes are happy to like spend time with the, young people who are coming up in the same world and and and, and a lot of it's happening in in kind of the same way we're having a conversation now right it's all letters back and forth the, the fact that he did go to florida or a few other places I, I did he ever meet clark ashton smith in person i'm not sure he did no he never he never met clark ashton smith uh unfortunately that would be an interesting meeting never re- never met robert e howard in person and yet they no. have reams and reams and reams of mm. conversations right yeah so why wouldn't it be just another one of those like it's kind of a leap that's what i mean like it could it could be but it's kind of a leap to say that that I, particular yeah. just because it's they got together in physical space doesn't mean it's any different from the other relationships yeah i it, what what seems to me is going on in this book is is that uh, Poole has the same kind of relationship to Lovecraft we do. We think he's he's fascinating. He wrote some amazing stories. Um, and he's trying to explain the fascination, not just he has, but also sort of the wider society with, with especially the Cthulhu plushie, you know, sort of just knowing who Lovecraft was or using Lovecraft as a name to conjure with. There are a lot of scenes where he, in the later section of the book where he talks about, you know, he's in a, He's in a funky uh, coffee house, and some guy with a uh, a bowler hat <laughs> comes up to him with a big tattoo on his arm that has Lovecraft's face, and says, "Hey, you're reading uh, whatever story it is." Um, he's reading, and and then they have sort of a mundane conversation that isn't really about uh, anything in Lovecraft. Sort of trying to figure out why Lovecraft plays the huge role as a 
totemic sort of symbol. And I don't I don't know what the answer to that any of that is, um, but I I don't own any Cthulhu plushies either. I, my I, I keep my, my basically I just keep buying books with his name on the side, you know. You're not signed up to um I don't I don't know or whatever it was the well the, <laughs> the Mr. Jim, you played you played uh, the Call of Cthulhu role playing game, right? Have you got any Cthulhu plushies? I have one. <laughs> <laughs> I was an early adopter. Do you sli- does it sleep on your bed? You know, like, what? How did? Uh, can you interface with the sort of the? Uh, what are the? One of the things that Poole does in here is he's sort of autobiographical, and he says, you know, how he uh, how he came to Lovecraft, um, you know, through a used bookstore, which uh, I came through to him through Robert E. Howard. Um, I was reading. Uh, you know all the Conan stuff. I think Savage Sword of Conan is mentioned in here, um, and that's what got me into Howard. And then I read Howard, uh, picked up a Howard book that was like the Cthulhu stories of, or you know the Lovecraftian influence stories of Robert E. Howard. And and I'm like, well, okay, I better find out who this Lovecraft guy is. And I came to it out of my teenage years, like most people seem to start. Um, how did you? find lovecraft uh i i discovered him in a anthology edited by uh james dickey i think called the undead that had the story of the hound in mm, great story. Uh, which i which i really really liked um and it was not long after that i picked up stephen king's dance macabre and in that book, King talks a lot about Lovecraft, and it's kind of like, oh, holy hell, who's this guy? You know, that was me um, too. Dance Macabre was mm, where I first heard about him. Uh, but at the time, in the mid '80s, Lovecraft was actually out of print in the UK up until like '84 or '85, when um, Panther, uh, that the, then the Granada books reissued him in big three big paperback omnibuses. So I spent quite a few years just scouring libraries and secondhand bookstores and just, you know, trying to find anything with any Lovecraft in. <laughs> and it was it was hard going, let me tell mm-hmm. you. Um, and you know, I I think I'd had a handful of stories in August, uh, old seventies paperback of August Earl's Trail of Cthulhu. Um, and I, I did you may spot the contrast. And then I got the uh, Call of Cthulhu role-playing game um, when that was first published in the UK in like 83, 84. And then literally one day I went to the bookstore and saw three new paperback omnibuses of all his works. And I was on holiday. I had money in my pocket to spend. And I was a very, very happy young man. Okay. I was absolutely delighted, you know. And it's kind of, oh, it was like, you see, Hilly was hitting the jackpot from going from literally having read, you know, a handful of short stories and owning a couple in battered old paperbacks. And suddenly I can own the entire canon. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, how did you, how did you come to it? Oh, I had, um, been more or less turned on to uh, to reading science fiction, particularly by my dad, who was a, a huge reader. Um, and uh, I don't remember specifically what the first one uh, I read was, but uh, you know, one of my uh, uh, 
hobbies or activities after school would be to stop at the uh, the stationery store that had this staircase that went up to the second floor. And all along the right-hand side of that staircase as you walked up were just paperbacks, 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 just thousands of them. And they had a really uh, – they used to put the um, uh, science fiction uh, stories like uh, right in the middle – uh, I don't know if that was designed to just grab your attention because this of the covers metaphor, or whatever. I think this is a metaphor of some kind because it's it's like halfway up the ladder. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I picked up a, an H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, book. The first story I remember reading uh, was Cool Air. Nice one. And uh, that just, uh, you know, not to make a stupid, obvious pun, it's not intended, but it gave me chills. It was... Mm. Uh, a, a, re, a really good, uh, fascinating story. And, uh, you know, from there, it was just like uh, anything I could find by Lovecraft, I, I picked it up. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny because um, I don't remember becoming obsessed with Lovecraft. I know that it happened at some point, but I don't remember when it was exactly. And I was, I, I had thought myself obsessed with Howard, trying to track down every story and. Uh, get, you know, they were much more available as a paper paperback, um, you know, anthologies with all the Conan anthologies, and then there was a bunch of other ones that were uh, released as well because he had a lot of he had a lot of material. Um, but it, Lovecraft came way later, and um, I think it it had a lot to do with what was in the in the used bookstore and what was uh, available to purchase. Just do you not- think as well? Sorry, carry on. No, go for it. Go for it. I was going to say, do you think as well? It's a little. It's like his writing style is also kind of um, sets you up for that because I feel like if you don't get him right away, um, which I didn't, but he's one of those writers where every time you read the story, like I get a, a bigger thrill than the last time I read mm-hmm. it. You know, like it's mm-hmm. like a, you slowly get more and more understand more of the story and it's and like I Shakespeare. Like a, really, I, I I find you know you, you cannot. If you just look at the words on the page and you're trying to get them individually, it doesn't work. You sort of have to get into the flow of it, and then once yeah. once you have, um, it just it becomes richer and richer. Mm-hmm. What, what was your first story? Do you remember, Marissa? No, I don't. I think it might have been at the mountains, but I I can't remember. Um, and I I think I just didn't really like him that much when I first started reading. I didn't really get it, even though I'd heard so much and I knew all the sort of the influences, I it didn't like grab me straight away, so I can't remember exactly. I just kept on trying to read every story that I kind of like stumbled across, and then started to enjoy it more and more. I I, I should mention I found this book. I had a gift card for for the only big major chain of bookstore in Canada left, and I had been sitting it had been sitting in my my safe for a long time not doing anything and i thought better use this before it expires so i went in and i it's getting harder and harder to find books in the actual bookstore and i just scoured the shelves in the science fiction fantasy section and nothing there It'll go over to the bargain bin nothing there okay i'll just go type in lovecraft into into the machine and see what's in stock and they had this book filed in you know the biography section um and uh, oh this I've never even heard of this book. Oh, it's brand new. Okay, I got it. As soon as I get home, Scott says to me, "Oh, there's an audio book." Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> um, I should point out that um, the audio book does not have. Um, there's some back back matter 
so a complete listing of all the stories. Um, there's uh, there's you know a, a note about sources. There is a um, uh, listing of of um, you know references, uh, and then a Necronomicon a fake lore. So you know all the different versions of the Necronomicon. Again, a book I, I don't own any copies of. Mr. Jim Moon, have you got one? Uh, I've got a couple of Necronomicons, yes. <laughs> are, are they more to look at on the shelf with the spine saying Necronomicon, or? Uh, well, I've got I've I've got a copy of the Simon one kicking around somewhere, which I'm not very impressed with. Yeah. Uh, I've got a, a reprint of the. Uh, it's normally known as the the Hay Necronomicon. Um, uh, and that's that's quite, that's quite good. It's only a handful of pages, but has some really good essays about Lovecraft in it oh. uh, by Angela Carter and Colin Wilson, and uh, some uh, really interesting, uh, interesting sort of actual critical stuff on Lovecraft. And the other one I've got, I've got the Chaosium Necronomicon, which um, reprints. Uh, There's a really obscure fan author who wrote his own. It's got that in. It's got a. Uh, uh, some excerpts from some of the other fake Necronomicons and a host of sort of uh, Necronomicon-related uh, short stories. Um, my favourite one in that one is a short story called The Adder by Fred Chappell. Hmm. And it's a story about a book that gets a copy of the Necronomicon. And it's a feared volume among booksellers because it's known to corrupt the books you place it next to. <laughs> and he finds the books he's placed this copy next to all the texts are becoming distorted and perverted. That sounds the great. Text, it's, a, it's a great story. Yeah, that's a great it's metaphor a, too. Mm, just like Wayne's mm. uh, st- spiral staircase. Um, I don't. I, I'm not sure why this book is titled "In the Mountains of Madness," um, because mm. it's not mostly about madness. Um, although I found the the depiction, the one line we get from, I I. I wrote it down a couple times and I've forgotten it perfectly but um, the, when Lovecraft's dad is on a business trip he comes running out of a hotel uh, and screaming um, the what is the chambermaid has insulted me um, <laughs> uh, my uh, strange men are raping my wife um, help help or something like that oh god <laughs> And then the, and then the you know the guys in the white coats come and fit him with a new straight waistcoat, and, <laughs> and then he ends and up. This, this was his father. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he ends up in in the asylum or a sanitarium, right? Um, and the 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 brutal fact, right? Like the fact that he was noisy—that's a horrible word, right? Oh, what a. <laughs> he's noisy again and then the casual tossing off of the line um that the treatment was enemas every every second day (laughs) (laughs) that'll keep you quiet (laughs) and then you off the streets and out of trouble (laughs) when he died uh a few years later what was the line it was he was there was uh it wasn't it was some i was gonna say lacerations but not it's not right his genitals were damaged and Poole's uh, theory is that, and it makes sense, is that it was um, a venereal disease caused, right? What was that disease called? Uh, syphilis. syphilis. Right. Yeah. Montpassant had it too, right? 
um, syphilis, um, that it had damaged his brain and he'd been just compulsively masturbating. Like, the if this is anywhere in the background of Lovecraft's psychology, like, that is Alan Moore's Neonomicon and... Uh, and uh, providence right is it it's bringing the sexual horror to the to the surface uh, and that i don't know what to make of it but it's um to me um when my father died in hospital and he's high on morphine that they're giving him more and more of because you know he's dying of cancer um and that's not a friendly way to go um there was uh, it, it was super traumatizing for me to see my father talking insensibly when you're high on opioids, you know, and -hmm. you've got cancer in your brain, uh, it's fucking disturbing because not, not just because you're a kid and you know, you're the guy you look up to is, is dying, but he's lost his senses. That's fucked up. Right. Uh, I don't know. It sounds to me like, they think, or Poole thinks, that um, this was probably hidden from Lovecraft. You know, that he, he went, when he goes to the, um, you know, the hospital to visit his mom, He they never go inside, they always walk around. People make a big deal out, out of that. I would say that's what you do, right? You you try not to spend your time in the, in the hospital room. But his own mom eventually is in an, a sanitarium as well. It's like... Uh, who knows what the fuck's going on, but it's got to be traumatizing. And Jesus, yeah, lose yourself in, in some good comic books or books or war games or, you know, pretend to be a detective because life is fucking horrible. Yeah, and, well, that that would certainly also answer uh, how and why the, the core of, of Lovecraft's philosophy is, you know, just the uh, absurdity and hopelessness of existence. You know, it's... it's, mm. it's yeah, like... Uh, how about this, Wayne? I bet you didn't know this. Um, I didn't know. Um, Lovecraft thought about suicide quite a bit and uh, planned it out. And, um, you know, I'm going to throw myself in the river um, because I don't want to shoot myself and, and leave a mess for my mom to clean up. <laughs> uh, I'll throw myself that. in this river He's and that way. Boy. And then he decides against it because there's interesting things in the world. Um, he's still got s- mysteries to solve. I know that's a great line. Like, with something like he says, uh, mm. he seriously considers suicide, but he hasn't learned enough about geology yet, or something. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. right? he's so curious. He's got stars to learn about. He's got geology to learn. Like, Absolutely. can't kill yourself. Uh, it's, uh, it's striking, and you know, like, uh, it's it's not the coward's way out necessarily. Uh, Lovecraft, um, you know, his best. His best uh, writing companion, or what? Well, maybe not his best, but one of his writing companions, uh, Howard, did the exact same thing in a very similar situation, right? He contemplated suicide and con- considered it and said it was a good idea. Um, and in a, in a lot of ways, Howard is even more sheltered um, than than Lovecraft was, but he was also a, a lot more depressive and a lot less intellectual. Uh, Maybe that's not fair, but I, I find him to be a lot less of a good writer than I used to. Even though he's powerful and beautiful uh, with his prose, he's he doesn't have this... Like uh, In reading, um, there's a story, Mr. Jim Moon, you, you probably know it, called The Thing on the Roof. You know oh, yes, story? yes. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so it's a, it's a Lovecraft story basically, uh, but without all the depth uh, and the it's just re- getting right into the action and and it's uh, you know it has the the requisite ending and all that stuff, but it just doesn't hold up as a you know the depth that any any particular Lovecraft story has, but um, I I think it's just in they're in touch with with that well at least lovecraft was in touch with that that horror that you know like why worry about uh you know getting married and all that stuff if you're worried about how horrible the universe right. is and and the fact that your parents um you know are immortal and will die and uh, i found a lot of um sympathy for the man in this book mm-hmm. yeah for sure Doesn't, isn't there a line in there somewhere as well where he's talking about his marriage um, and he says something similar that he decided to get married instead of killing himself right right <laughs> <laughs> I mean <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that sorry <laughs> it worked out quite well for him for Sonya yeah. I mean for a while I guess it worked out in the end but um yeah, I mean, I, I'm intri- I'm even more intrigued by what's missing um, after mm-hmm. reading this. And just seeing, like, one of the things I heard, uh, I, I saw it in some forums, somebody was just saying, you know, what was Lovecraft doing all those years when he wasn't writing? And I I just said, whatever it was, I don't care, because he ended up with all that great writing out of it, right? But now I, I, I kind of think that whatever he was doing was... You know, he apparently was writing. He was publishing a lot of amateur uh, journals. You know, the Society of Astronomy for Providence or Rhode Island, whatever it was, amateur mm-hmm. astronomer society, whatever, whatever it was called. Mm. Um, you know, just running all those all those clubs and and writing all that stuff. He was uh, becoming something. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much sympathy in. It's seeing what is, as Poole points out, you know, this is not the first biography. It's, what, the eighth or something? And I, I'm sure there's, uh, at least, right? There's there's going to be more, way more. Um, and it's is it because all those letters are there? Or is it because the, the works are somehow special and we have the letters? Because I, I haven't seen like 15 Stephen King biographies, and maybe won't so, see them until he's dead. I don't know, but mm-hmm. there's something there's something going on, and I I think Poole was trying to figure out what it was, and I don't think he quite put his nail, you know, in in what it was, but I do think that he's pointed to a lot of things that I haven't seen anywhere else. There's some wonderful bits in the book. I mean, um, there's so much that. I say I'd not come across before, and right. so much that's at odds against the the quite called the, the myth of Lovecraft, where we have turned his life into one of his own stories. Right. But you know, it's kind of you, you take the traditional view of Lovecraft. <clears throat> he's maladjusted. He's antisocial. He's weird. He doesn't like speaking to people. He just communicates in letters. And yet, we have this wonderful story that he goes to stay for seven weeks with Robert Barlow and his family. Right. Um, they go out on picnics. He goes blackberry picking and falls <laughs> in the stream. <Yeah. laughs> you know, it's kind of 
hang on, that, that, that's Winnie the Pooh, not H.P. Lovecraft, the weirdo. You know what I mean? But you suddenly... I think Howard Pooh Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean, things you get to see, you realise there's so much more to the man than we know, and that so much... Well, you know, that has been written about him has been this kind of off the hip astrology that the king talked about. You know what I mean? This kind of very sort of facile, falling into one of the oldest critical traps in the book of the intentional fallacy. Right. And that's reading yeah. all his texts as some kind of secret autobiography. And I think, you know, the fact is the, the letters most people have read are the ones where he's just talking about what makes a a weird tale and things that sort of play into that myth. But quite clearly there's a whole other side to him that, you know, these letters we haven't seen that are long lost of where he's just chit chatting with friends and, you know, all these kind of walks and sort of, you know, get togethers he had, and, you know, a very different picture from him emerges. And I quite clearly, I think there's a lot of work still to be done on his life Yeah, and, you know, kind of trying to, you know, to break down this sort of received wisdom about him that we've had. And, you know, I think, you know, for better or worse, it's kind of, I think DeCamp sort of set the tone. Cause I remember reading that DeCamp biography and thinking, Jesus, did you come here to praise him or bury him? Cause it, <laughs> and I think you asked you, Josh, you, you know, they did call it and say, well, effectively it's almost a hatchet job. Right. Uh, you know, DeCamp is very critical about him. And I think I've read some of your stuff, mister, you can pipe down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, kind of how much was sour grapes of kind of his vices gagging those attention rasmus rasmus well it, <laughs> it is so much about what you bring to it right so mm. uh li- is that the library biography you're talking about chris uh, no no did you camp one de camp sorry i'll yeah. spring to camp right yeah so what's de camp do is he he finds other people's writings that are much better than his uh, like uh, all the Conan stuff, right? And it says, well, I can do this too. And then you read it and you say, that's not great. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it is sour grapes in a certain sense. But uh, also just trying to get a handle on, on a whole life, right? Filling, because he's writing all the time and we we know so much about what he says, it feels like we get to know him. Mm. And it, he is like a person we kn- we know or can know, and with mm-hmm. new new revelations about the history, it it is incredibly like you know uh, having a friendship or a telepathy uh, of you know spending time with somebody. You just know how what they'll be like and how they are like. Yeah, I was thinking when uh, when when Jim was was speaking like uh, about. Uh, uh, where did this mythology uh, of of Lovecraft come from? That he is, you know, he's the crazy guy, and uh, he's so horrible, and uh, only, you know, they only come out at night, and all that business. Well, that made me think of a. There was a, a statement in uh, this book, The Conspiracy Conspiracy Against the Human Race, by Thomas Ligotti. This is like mm-hmm. a serious philosophical book about the uh, hopelessness of the human condition, the dr- just the dreadfulness of, of existence and life, and how uh, it was his observation that uh, for people who actually hold that position and, uh, and let these ideas affect their life and their actions and people don't like them, you know? Right. If, if, you're, if you're not ready to, to, to spout the part 
pretty line of life is wonderful. Isn't life great? And mm. because the, from his perspective, that's what we have to do because you, you, you have to do that or else you have to admit that, you know, uh, death is waiting for each and every one of us. Uh, uh, illness is, is not, uh, something that you're guaranteed to avoid. Life just is horrible. It, existence is horrible. That, and if, if you hold that, people at large, uh, consciously or not, just, uh, you know, they're, they're going to take a step back from you. And I think perhaps that's, that's a little bit of, uh, of something that possibly contributed to, to, to Lovecraft's uh, you know, reputation, if you will, and to his mythology is that, uh, you know, he, re he really, number one, he's absolutely an atheist and, uh, you'd have to say he's a pessimist, uh, at, uh, at best you could say he's, a uh, an atheistic existentialist just thinks that life is absurd. And, you know, people, people don't, when they get a whiff of that attitude, they don't like it. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of one of the things that um, reminds me of is uh, Pool is um, an academic, right? He's a professor at a university. Um, he he talked about how when he was doing a course on Lovecraft, he had the students as as a bonus question. He asked them what H.P. Lovecraft's philosophy was, and they had they had just finished reading the Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. And he, he said he would have accepted um, materialism or atheism or cosmicism as an answer. Uh, but the only consistent he, answer he got was racism <laughs> as wow. the philosophy. And wow. it, it, to me, that is exactly what people, right? The first thing you think of Lovecraft is if you're thinking of the mainstream, you think, Cthulhu plushie, racist. <laughs> well, that, that, that's something I don't think he, Poole takes account of, because he says, and, oh, the only story we'd read was The Call of Cthulhu. Right. And it's like, dude, do you don't think your students didn't do a quick bit of Googling beforehand, before answering that uh -huh. question, and went to this first answers they found? <laughs> I yeah. think they did. Uh, you know. It's everywhere, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> it, it's, it's, uh, it's something you have to get past. Um, uh, get past the 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 popular conception, right? Then uh, I still I'm trying to find tentacles in another story other than uh, than Call of Cthulhu. Is there are there's got to be some Azathoth or something might have some tentacles, but tentacles seem to be the thing that everybody takes away, right? It's even on the cover of this book. Um, uh, one one of the lines in here was. Um, yeah, he loved ice cream and hated fish. Right? <laughs> um, I love well, that. I like fish. I don't like I don't like shellfish. Um, I love ice cream, but you know, if you sum me up with, you know, doesn't like mushrooms, doesn't like uh, uh, shellfish, doesn't uh, loves ice cream. I'm like that's exactly how we think of you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> that's like I, I like coffee too. Like I, I enjoy walks with dogs. <laughs> Hates mushrooms, loves coffee. <laughs> right. Hates mushrooms, loves coffee. Right. Now, that was touched on the Freudian symbolism, and a right. lot's made of supposed uh, female and vaginal symbolism of. Uh, Right. of Cthulhu and I see it crop all over the MR James as well and uh, I think uh, dude have you read this description of Cthulhu and yeah. you know if you think that's vaginal it's kind of 
level of who have you been dating? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's kind of come on. Wow. If he was writing about a big pit in the desert that swallows everything, or a big pit under the sea, maybe you know, he'd have that Freudian <laughs> symbolism. But something with a Cthulhu, which is a complete chimera of dragons and sea creatures and demons, is kind of. I, I don't think this Freudian thing holds up very well. <laughs> I, I I was thinking like. It's it, the irony is is sort of bigger. Like it's not about you know that uh, it's it's that he lo- what, What's the the book is I am Providence, right? That's the book. That's what it. Uh, that's the, the biography by Joshi. That's what it says on his gravestone, right? And I I think of that as kind of uh, a joke, right? Now I'm Providence. Now that I'm in the dirt <laughs> of Providence, <laughs> mm. I think of it that way. But. He thinks of himself as a as a, a man of Providence, a man of Rhode Island, right? Um, and the 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 fortune that his family got, that you know that he was heir to as a young man, a very young man, and then lost, is one that comes from the fact that he's in a very specific part of the world, on an island, that made its money from whaling, right? Going out in the sea, coming back. And you think of the story like the shadow out of Innsmouth, where you've got, you know, this once prosperous village that turns to, you know, it compromises itself um, and it becomes corrupted. This is deeply psychological for Lovecraft, I think, because it was he comes from a once prosperous family that is, you know, com- uh, that, that he doesn't want to compromise himself with, right? He doesn't. He's not mm. willing to you know, work at a gas station. Like, when I had to work at a gas station, I I, I didn't come from riches. I, I found it humiliating because my co-workers were assholes, but I, I didn't, I didn't have, I, I, it would have been a lot worse if I had come from wealth and yeah, been sure. brought I mean, low. That's all, that's another thing that's con- contributed probably to his uh, worldview, if you will, is, uh, uh, you know, just, he he would to, he would be totally bemoaning uh he would totally be bemoaning the the decline of the aristocracy you know of which he is a rightful member absolutely you know? uh, yeah he, in this book he's uh, there's a line where lovecraft claimed to have uh, uh pledged allegiance to king george or something when 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 it, when it was a <laughs> july 4th holiday <laughs> um and and shocked the neighbors or whatever he he yeah he an unrepentant Tory right <laughs> and he thinks of himself as an Englishman displaced and and uh, you can see certainly in so many of the stories that you know uh, the rats in the walls it's about a man who uh, finds himself again wealthy and can return to the glory and rebuild this right you can read that out of his own life but it is not his life right um, it's it's uh, expression expressing his interest and and i think that that's why we're so interested in the man just as we're so interested in his stories is because he's writing true right he's not trying to you know make hay from whatever current zombie trend or whatever vampire trend is is happening is he isn't like okay what's the flavor of the week let's do that he honestly is uncompromising Here's what I'm I'm willing to write. Yeah, I don't want to be rejected. So, if his friends submitted to Weird Tales and there, it's rejected. It's no skin off his nose, right? 
um, because his dignity hasn't been impugned. It's when you put your when you when you're in a high position, you put yourself out there and you're rejected. That's when you feel like uh, you're you're hurt. He could suffer any sort of indignity um, as long as he he didn't have to classify himself as one of them, right? Yep, yep. And uh, not coming from wealth, uh, I can still sympathize with his position. And uh, it 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 is uh, kind of a beautiful tragedy in a certain sense because mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think it could all worked out um, uh, a lot better, but it, it could have been a lot worse if he is still if he was still alive in the '70s and became super super assholeish racist and his stories became uh, you know uh, something he was he was marketing and became really jealous of it uh, it could. The fact that he was so generous with his material, it seems to come from a position of, you know, the Lord dispensing wealth and being kind. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, mean, I think a lot of it he was giving out kind of what he wished he had mm-hmm. received when he was he was younger, and I think also the fact that he did mentor and correspond with so many different young writers like Robert right. Block and Ray Bradbury, Fritz Leiber. And, and Barlow. I think it was very much kind of, I think he'd found a lifeline in the amateur press and he was forever repaying that debt back yeah. with extraordinarily, you know, generosity. I think, I think Lovecraft's problem was that, you know, as you said, he was in a time when everyone was reading, but he wasn't willing to compromise his vision and kind of, Although there was a huge reading market, he wasn't in a position to actually get his fiction to the market where he could have made money in his lifetime, and that would have been in printed books. Yeah, he he would have been a terrible self marketer, right? I mean, the best he could do is you know he writes a fan letter to somebody, and it's all highfalutin poetry. Um, That's not. I got this great book. Please review it and uh, then handshake and move on to the next person. Got this great book, right? Um, The the marketing came after, like so many great artists, right? The marketing Mm. came after by his fans, right? August Derelith was a. So this is this is actually my my point for Wayne is he needs an agent as enthusiastic as me with a little more time. (laughs) <laughs> and with a little more avarice because um, I'm not r- super willing to do things for money, but I could make Wayne so much money if I wanted money because he's well, so get, talented. Get to work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what are you waiting for? Well, you know, where's your, where's your, where's your Patreon? You need a Patreon. My mom says I need a Patreon. I'm like, yeah, it's too much work. Like, <laughs> Jesse, you should do Patreon. You, you contribute to Patreon. You know, you know, you should. Now, I'm like, nah, it's too much work. Wayne, ne- Wayne June needs a Patreon, right? Where's the complete? Uh, did 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 you see my note that Audio Realms is out of business? All your uh, audiobook work for them is up in the air. Yeah, that's so. Uh... We got to get uh, you know, the complete H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, one one book a month or whatever it is as yeah, a Patreon. I keep, I keep I keep threatening to do that and um. There's some sort of barrier. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, like it's like you're you can't lower yourself to that. So we need somebody to lower. <laughs> it's not that. I'm just I'm lazy. Is what it is. 
and honest about your laziness. Well, we we gotta get we gotta get it going because uh, I keep I keep thinking you know another birthday's gone by. Wayne's getting older. Uh, I don't know if he can make God. it and get it all done because there's so many works to uh, you have to narrate all those letters and I ain't dead yet. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> That's how I started the first podcast uh, with you. Is uh, <laughs> you're still alive? <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it's a running joke now. <laughs> killing me. You're just killing me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we're we're gonna get you to get the uh, we're get get you the right book next time. Um, uh, not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I want to do at the mountains of madness, but it's a big it's a big job. Not in the mountains of madness, you know. Um, yeah. It's a it's an expedition that book. Mm. There's a lot to a lot to do. There's a lot of comic books I need to read, and uh, Poole makes an argument in here uh, that Prometheus is is kind of a retelling of At the Mountains of Madness, and I sort of see it, but I also I I don't like Prometheus very much. So what, what did you make of that, <laughs> Mr. Jim Moon? Well, th- there are a lot of shared elements and. Uh, you know, he, do, he does actually <laughs> go further than anyone else I've heard. He does call out uh, Campbell's "Who Goes There?" Yeah, as a shitty, <laughs> shitty story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I have to agree. It's not very well written. It's great ideas, and the, but you know, you, you, there is a massive debt to Lovecraft that still a lot of people aren't even aware of, even in the kind of Lovecraft. Uh, I don't know, saturated pop culture we live in. There's that's, that's still a link that's kind of unexplored um i might do a thing podcast at some point and uh, do, uh, I, you gotta do a thing i've been sending everything to marissa yeah you gotta do your thing podcast <laughs> the, the thing and it and them Thames. and they <laughs> any pronoun that all the mysterious pronouns <laughs> the mysterious pronouns are hiding the indescribable the pronouns yeah they're always in dark places that's right. They are interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, folks. I think we're close to a, a show on this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, oh, that was great fun. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Good stuff. Uh, yeah, so I I'm looking. The extra sleep. It says, "Yeah, Marissa, Jim." I, I have to confess, me and Jim went out drinking. So, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, he's you guys your are dad. Partying all night. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, so um, let's do a show. I got a student coming at eleven, which is uh, an hour and fifty minutes from now. But I don't think we should take the whole time. Okay. Um, your recording capabilities back up online, Mr. Jimin? Um, they were, but then there was another Skype update since oh. then, so I'm going to see what happens now when I press okay. the button. Yeah, it's pretty nightmarish, isn't it? Oh, uh, you just get one thing sorted, then they update it and break something else. Yep. <laughs> True enough. And it's not like they get better. Mine has a conniption fit every time I, I look at it. I, I hover my mouse over and says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! You looking at me?" 
The <laughs> <laughs> whole computer freezes. Okay. So, um, let's get started. Uh, I don't know if this guy has a Wikipedia entry. W. Scott Poole. Wikipedia. W. Scott Poole. Uh, hmm. For some reason, I couldn't open the zip, so I listened to an entirely different version. Is that going to give me <laughs> a, a problem? Uh, are we talking about the novel At the Mountains of Madness? Or Yes. <laughs> seriously oh. seriously yeah yeah why <laughs> oh my gosh well you're not uh -oh. prepped for the right book <laughs> oh oh well all right i'll fake it 